We'll read uh, through the Ten Commandments, beginning verse 1, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. If you have that, just look up and I'll begin reading. And if you're visiting, I just want to say we, we have the habit of picking a book of the Bible and uh, going through serially in our preaching, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want uh, this way to cover all of God's material for us. We don't set the agenda. The Lord has His words set the agenda for us in our worship and in our instruction. And we are His servants. We hear, we listen to the Lord when He speaks. And in this passage, we have this. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock, or your sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. As far reading God's holy word, let's pray. Oh Lord, we've read these words numerous times. We pray that uh, they might come into uh, a new relish for us, that we might delight in your law even further. We might know the excellencies of our God, his wisdom, your goodness, and uh, your profound holiness. It's so pervasive, the testimony of her word to your holiness. And help us, Lord, to learn uh, uh, tonight's, tonight's uh, teaching, that you may have the fruit of it, and that we might glorify you in it for the sake of Christ's redemption. And for his name's sake, we pray on that. Please be seated. We're just saying a portion of Psalm 119. It's one of the first pieces of Scripture that I... I I preached as a series when I first came and was uh, became your pastor, and that's what, that's because I I, I really sensed that uh, the love of God's revelation in all of its forms uh, is perhaps the greatest tribute that we can have, showing God that we are indeed His people, that we love Him, that we listen to Him, and uh, Psalm one hundred nineteen is is very very useful. I commend that for you uh, to get to know it, maybe memorize it. If, if you can uh, read music, sing it, 
or learn how to sing it by downloading uh, music files, teach your children. Uh, we live in an age where somehow we, under, uh, we, we, we seem, so many churches have seemed to forget, have forgotten that uh, the law is absolutely foundational. It's principial to everything in the scripture. And, uh, and uh, without, without the firm foundation of law, uh, there would be no real understanding and no real appreciation for the work of Christ, no real appreciation for the mercy of God in Christ to sinners, and no real relish of that righteousness which is infinite and that has been imputed to us. In other words, we can speak of grace, we can speak of God's love, we can speak of salvation. All these terms are fine and they're biblical and they're right. But if we don't understand the weight that these terms carry, we'll never really satisfy our soul, our souls and delight in the teaching of God uh, with inexpressible joy. And the Lord wants us to know uh, that He is holy and that He's serious about holiness, He's serious about helping us in the path of holiness, that we as a creature were made to be in the image of God and we can do no better in this life. We can do have no better life than to be holy and obedient. And then and in that sense, all is the it's the best thing we can do. Uh, any compromise in holiness is a compromise of our real nature, of who we really are. People are always saying, oh, identify as being this, or identify being that. If you can't identify as being a creature in God's image, brother, I don't care what identity you have, uh, it's a vain identity. It's going to be like chaff blown in the wind. The only thing that remains is the image of God and the image of God renewed in Christ. The rest of it, the new heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the earth, uh, everything will be restored to that pristine nature without sin. And that's why it's so very important that we begin to relish, uh, relish something, have a, a something of a foretaste of that heavenly life now, uh, and that is a that's the greatest that's the greatest inducement, the greatest motivation we can ever have to to continue in the Lord, to persevere in the Christian race despite all manner of affliction, persecution, difficulty, illness, whatever. Uh, once we get a, a, a glimmer of that, there's no stopping us. The race is on, and you will love, love to race to Zion. And that's how all the saints have seen it, and uh, that's what we need. The teaching here this evening is as follows. The revelation of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. This revelation of the moral law and the Ten Commandments inspired all. At Mount Sinai, God dramatically underscored the critical importance of the Ten Commandments as the revelational foundation supporting all of Scripture. Now I say this, and I put it in italics in my own notes, and, and because as, as I read commentaries on this, one man you know, tries to emphasize the importance of it and the glory of the law and all this. He says, this is, this is the most important revelation that God gave Israel in the wanderings in the desert. Well, yeah, uh, that's right. But his statement is grossly, grossly understated. Uh, and, and this is an author that's writing in, a, in one of the most important evangelical uh, Bible dictionaries. Uh, my friends, uh, if, we, if we understand the moral law properly, 
and not in a way uh, that has been, it's been treated, say, in the last, uh, I'd say, 140 years. We really, we really had uh, a misunderstanding of, of the moral law in so many ways. We've chopped it up. We begin to omit great pieces of it. And we, we do that because we do not understand the wholesomeness of it. We don't understand the nature. And, we, and here in this sermon, we want to understand the, to the primacy and the pervasiveness, uh, the pervasiveness of the law as a foundation undergirding everything, 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 okay, in Scripture. So here's what I've got, uh, 10 points, and this is not a long sermon. I'm just going to go through it because what I want to do is convince you that, all right, you might be able to... Uh, try to dismiss the Ten Commandments here in, in Exodus 20. You know, it's just one little piece here in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Oh, okay, Exodus chapter 20, okay, let's go on. It's not going to be that easy. Because the rest of the Bible is interacting with uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and Deuteronomy 5, and other places where the, the moral law is repeated. So anyway, we need to be good Bible students, and we need to, uh, we need to catch the importance as God is repeating himself purposely. And uh, anyway, here it goes. I want to say first as a prelude, backing up into chapter 19, that the drama, uh, all, all of this thunder and lightning and smoke and, and uh, the quaking of earth and, and the sounds of trumpets and God's own voice, all of that drama of the Mount Sinai theophany, it, it really commanded your the attention of Israel. It got Israel's attention. Uh, they, they were quaking in their boots or at least in their sandals. Look, uh, this is a most significant visit from God. He comes down from heaven. He came down to visit Moses in a fiery bush. Remember Exodus 3? He introduced himself as the great I Am. And then he gave him instructions. There were some instructions of Moses to go back and, and give to Pharaoh and all that. And that was God visiting. But why didn't he come... Why didn't he appear to Moses that way? And that would have been a very profound introduction, right? That was not anywhere near as important as what was given in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Hearing the voice uh, of Jehovah from heaven uh, and also the presence of the Lord in a visible structure. God himself is invisible, but he made himself uh, as it were, he wrapped himself in thick clouds, uh, and uh, and he came down in a visible form. And the theophany, as we say it, it's a it's a manifestation, a physical manifestation of the invisible, of the invisible God. And of course, uh, the drama was such that only one man uh, is able to ascend the mountain and to descend the mountain, and that descent was with what the law. He, he came down with something that God delivered. As if, as if uh, he's knocking at your door and he's getting your attention, and then when you finally open the door and receive the package, you take it back to the family, and they say, they're watching TV, they what was that all about? Well, I don't know, there's got two tablets here. You know, if God descends from heaven and he makes all of this drama, then those commandments must be very, very significant, and they are, and they are. And only one man was chosen, and he was a, a, a typological man. And you might say, well, we'll look at that. It's a very symbolic act. All other men, even at first, even Aaron, who was Moses' spokesman at first, was prohibited. One, and only one. The drama then was 
uh, commanded to get Israel's attention, and it really should get our attention if we think about what is going on here. The second point is that the inscription of the law on stone tablets by God was very unique. It was unique because you would, you would expect with all this motion going on and the earth quaking and the, the, the trumpets blaring louder and louder and the voice of God now very, very robust. So the people saying, look, we can't take this. We, you speak for us. Speak for God. We'll listen to you. But we, please don't have God speak to us. That's what they were saying. But after Moses goes up, then there's 40 days of silence. And we'll read that later. That's coming up. It's a prelude. And, and as in most, as in most uh, musical productions of great art, there's a period of silence. There's a rest. Like in the conclusion of Handel's Messiah. I think there's, there's, there's three stops, babe. I don't know. There's three, I think there's three rests there. It's, it catches your attention. All this music, all, and then all of a sudden, well, where, where did Moses go? Forty days of waiting, which is symbolic, but I don't want to get into the symbolism. Moses came down to the people with the two tablets. Uh, there's conjecture whether God wrote on both sides or it was two copies, but if you think about it, so what? I mean, either way, you're going to get, you're going to get the Ten Commandments, whether they're on one side and they're both copies or it doesn't. No, I, I really think there probably were two copies and in, both inscribed on both sides. So the, the fact of the matter is they were written in stone. And stone um, indicates something much more permanent than the rest of the scriptures. Moses did not chisel out any other writings uh, except by uh, papyrus. Now, the other commandments were written in in, uh, in glazed uh, ceramic, and there's other places where commandments are written out. But as far as, as far as the transmission of the revelation of God, all other was by scroll and parchment. Uh, but this was on stone, speaks of the permanence uh, of, of, of the Ten Commandments. It was written by the finger of God and not Moses. I would, I would love dearly to see the kind of lithography that God used. Uh, you know, the Hebrew alphabet can be very ornate. Um, and uh, and I, think it's, I think it's a very beautiful language to read. But God must have done a wonderful job in handwriting this himself, not Moses. And so there was no, you might say, well, the rest of the scripture has errors and glosses and all that. There can be no gloss to those, ten, to those Ten Commandments. No error whatsoever because God himself wrote it. There's no transmission error by way of copy. You'll see this spoken of not in this section here in Exodus 30, but in Exodus 34, the first four verses, and then again in verses 27 and 29. You can take my notes and read that on your own. Uh, the permanence of stone uh, leads, leads to... Uh, uh, when we transgress and when we violate this law, there's where the expression, the breaking of the law, because uh, a certain material, a lot of materials, even paper, uh, are uh, you can bend, you can fold, there's some play. Uh, but when you break a commandment, you break the tablet, and that's what happens when the Moses descends with the tablets. He finds the camp of Israel uh, sporting, and that's a, a euphemism for 
for doing uh, illicit, illicit uh, acts and, and riotous acts, uh, inebriated and, and sexual activity there in the camp. And so Moses would take uh, the tablets and throw them down and break them as, as an act that uh, if this is the covenant and the covenant is set in stone, and then Israel has broken covenant immediately by its idolatry of worshiping God so crassly, no matter he, uh, he, had, not, he had not asked. And of course, Aaron said, behold, Israel, your God, and it was a, it was a bull or a calf. That is the breaking of the law. There's no bending of the law, but it does say that this permanence, it, cannot, it will not be changed. You can break it, uh, but you will never, ever, uh, you will never be rid of it. It, is, it speaks of permanence. The third point is that the duplication of the tablets uh, after Israel broke covenant is very important. The duplication of it. Israel breaks covenant. And in other situations where the covenant of grace is broken, God seems to abandon his people and uh, gives them over to captivity and discipline. And it seems for a while he, he, he distances himself but not in the, in the duplication of the, uh, the tablets in, in this covenant, uh, simply because uh, the, the law stands man's failure notwithstanding. The law is firm, is eternal. It, it's once given, it will never go away. It was given at creation. It stayed with man even through his fall. The law is perfect. The Lord will not annul it. And though every man break it, it's, it stands. It stands. And nothing, not even man's failure, not even the, the angels' failures in heaven, if they were under the same covenant, could break it. God's purpose in giving the law then uh, includes and accounts for, it anticipates man's failure. In fact, you might say that the Lord planned this. It, the, it, the law has certain properties that... Uh, irritate fallen human nature and cause human nature to, to despair. And, uh, and, and as long as he remains under the dominion of law and not fulfilling its terms, there's a sense in which uh, men and, and women sinners become furious. And, uh, and this accounts for the Jews so violently laying hands on the Son of Man uh, because they had the law and... and <laughs> But they were, not, they were not appropriating the grace of the covenant by believing in its Messiah. And that law infuriated them when they, when they were found to be condemned. Uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord was very thorough in having them understand that they by no means, by no means have pleased God in their obedience uh, in obeying the law. And so even after Israel breaks covenant, the law is upheld. And there is no release from the law through disobedience. There is no release from the law in numbing your conscience through alcohol or in having a lot of fun, staying busy, working yourself to death uh, through religiosity and much uh, physical exertion uh, with regard to uh, piety. There is no release from the law in inventing new theologies as if the law were a thing behind us. I think you've read some of those theologies. They're atrocious. They're, they're an innovation. For, uh, well, man has always been had a hankering to 
unfetter himself from the chains of this law. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. Uh, you know, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, break us under their cords. And he in the, in the, who sits in the heavens laughs. They, they want to be done with this covenant. And which is the covenant? They don't remember making a covenant. They, all mankind is under a covenant in Adam. And when Adam fell, he broke the covenant, but all his seed, all, all of his physical posterity, report up to Adam as his head, as their head, and that law is still binding. And that law in Adam is this law, the Ten Commandments. And, and, and so this, is, this accounts for the hatred of God and the violence of religion and the fanaticism. Anyway, after uh, Israel breaks the covenant, the law is still upheld. There's no release from the law. Uh, through any efforts, through uh, what the Roman Catholics is, is super arrogation. You've met the demands of the law. You've exceeded the law. Now you can uh, basically put it aside because you've, you've met its terms and more so. Uh, it's nonsense. The Lord taught us, uh, having done all, the servant says, look, I, I, I'm an unprofitable servant. I deserve nothing. Do with me as, as you like, Lord. That's right. But there is no reward to be expected at all from doing what God merely asks all of his creatures to do. It's just our duty. All right. Uh, so the duplication of the tablets is another indication that, law, that this section of Scripture, God, God is, going, is, going to, is going to reaffirm it. Now the placing of the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant is very, very significant. This, uh, this narrative is in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 20. Uh, and it says that uh, before God, uh, as you enter, as you enter into His tabernacle, and you see there, if you could see there, because you're not a high priest entering into the holy holiest of places, but if you could see there in your mind the diagram. There's the Ark of the Covenant, and above is the throne of God uh, between the the, cher uh, the cherubim, and the law is there under the mercy seat in in the Ark. And that is a testimony that that righteousness must be met for God to entertain your visit, for God to respect your presence. This is a bar, a standard that you must exceed before you come and be familiar with God and be conversant and have communion with God. Now that, that debt of sin as a result of us breaking the Ten Commandments that debt must be paid, and then also the righteousness of that must be met. In other words, not only do the, must there, is there a debt to, to be paid by the law's demands, which is, which is, which is a, a payment in blood. Uh, if, if, if the soul that sins, it shall die. That debt needs to be paid, but then also God having the debt, that's not enough. Having the, debt, the debt paid is not enough. He still demands righteousness in whoever standing before him. And the law is a reminder of that. The law is a reminder that God requires absolute perfection. Be perfect as even your Father in heaven is perfect, said Jesus. And that's not just for Jews. All right. The Ark of the Covenant then is a symbol, and it is retained for us, of course, in Jewish uh, symbols in the, in the, in the St. John's uh, Apocalypse in the book of Revelation. Uh, but, but that is a revelation for the whole church. Uh, again, reminding us that God's presence, there's a bar. 
And, uh, and the ark is, is there, and the ark certainly had the two, the two tablets. Uh, that's in Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 19. So it's an everlasting tribute to the holiness of God and the bar uh, that man must meet, both in the paying the debt and in standing in righteousness. Now, of course, if you know the gospel, the gospel, uh, Jesus pays our debt. We're forgiven all our sins. He, the, the, the blood was sprinkled. The, 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 the blood of, of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the covering above uh, the mercy seat. The mercy seat was above the table. So there was mercy with God covering the demands of the ark, but it was always by the blood. The blood remits sin. The blood covers. Uh, so Jesus does that. He remits sins. He covers our, our, our sin, but he does more than that. He forgives sin, but then he also accredits to us all his righteousness as if it was our own. So uh, as we stand before God, we are, uh, according to God's equity in Christ, we are perfect. We are perfect in his righteousness, and we are justified in that way, and we are perfectly acceptable to God. Uh, in real life, we wait to be glorified, to be standing physically before God, uh, body and soul. Until that day, we have sinned to contend with. But, but anyway, the, the, the illustration of the importance of the, of the Ten Commandments is there. The repetition, the repetition of the Ten Commandments, these Decalogues to, uh, to Israel, not only uh, after Moses uh, cracked the first set, uh, but on the plains of Moab, just before uh, Joshua entered the new, the new land, the promised land, and Moses again repeats the Decalogue. That's why uh, the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, the, the second law, the second reading of the law. And that was for the generation entering the promised land. And they had entered into covenant at, at, at Mount Sinai when they were infants. We saw an infant baptism. And so they were infants, and they were, they were part of the national covenant, and so they were being groomed by, by God's teaching, by God's word, and God's presence was in the camp. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, there was no drama. Uh, the, the Lord, at the second giving of his law, uh, teaches us that having established a foundation, there's no sense to rebuild it. it it's good. It's, it's intact. All we need to do is declare it. And that's what he did in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So, Again, uh, but a complete repetition of the Decalogue and uh, reminding them, of course, that he was their redeemer uh, and, that, uh, and that the offer, uh, the offer of God to be their God as a covenant God is a gracious covenant to be believed and accepted as a gift uh, in, in, uh, from his hands. All right, sixth point, the promise of the law. The promise of the law written on human hearts this is, this is right at the crosshairs of the importance of the revelation of salvation in Scripture. If you, want to be, if you want to understand the mechanics of how God saves and the importance of His law, this is it. All mankind in Adam, because man was made in the image of God, he had knowledge, he had righteousness and holiness. That's what, that's what man had as a reasonable creature that distinguished him from every other creature. Uh, every, other, every other creature that God had made. But all mankind had a form of this law in their nature in the beginning. But after Adam sinned, this law is much blurred. Uh, the, you might say the tables are, are defaced. Uh, they, they, they've been rubbed 
And so it's, it's hard, it's sometimes hard to read, uh, but uh, uh, some of it is still there in the consciences of men. It's found in, uh, in every country, in every place. And uh, that's why men kill others when, uh, when people, uh, 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 you know, kill their sons. They know it's wrong. They get angry. Um, if someone should cheat on their wife, again, it's, it's dealt with most harshly. Uh, and the people have a sense for this sort of thievery. It's met with severely as a civil, as a civil law penalty. Uh, all of these things. Um, the mankind then, the, the, the promise of the law in renewing Israel was given at a time when Israel had fallen to idolatry and as it were had proven themselves to be quite carnal at the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah idolatry was rampant we see this again in the gospel preaching John the Baptist comes and he's requiring repentance the whole nation all of God's people are being asked to repent they're very far from God make a way for the one who's coming the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world He's coming. He's going to, so make, make the highways plain. All right. And it, that promise of, of the moral law once again renewed in shining, uh, in shining letters by the finger of God, the Spirit on the heart, not on, not on tables of stone, but on a regenerate heart. And of course, a regenerate heart is, is one that is born again and will always endure. And so again, the permanency of the law, because the law is is written in the regenerate heart, and the regenerate heart enters the new heavens and the new earth. It abides. It abides forever. And so, and, and so again, it speaks of the permanency of the, of, of, the, of the law, but also the importance in its glorious promise to the Old Testament saints. This is something that they wanted. They wanted to circumcise hearts. They wanted hearts of flesh. Uh, that that uh, were near to loving God's law and walking in his ways. And there are the promises, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 26. You know these uh, places in Scripture very, very well. Uh, but now, it's my opinion that this is not a promise that was delivered uh, by the hands of uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel so that Israel might wait uh, six or seven hundred years uh, or more to receive them from Christ. I, I don't believe it. I believe that uh, if they if they latched onto these promises, that the Lord uh, uh, acted on this and really did circumcise hearts. He actually he gave them the he gave them the commandment. Oh Israel, circumcise your hearts and rend your hearts and not your garments. And it's the same thing. It's in other words, present a, a lively heart to God. It's promised then. This, the the promised uh, law written in the hearts is promised to the Old Testament saints, um, and that law is never remitted, but it's fully, fully kept in the New Testament saints. After all, we are uh, a wild branch grafted into the domestic trunk of the, tr the, the tree of, of, of Israel. Uh, we have the same root stock and, um, and the same sap, which is the Holy Spirit, we're one people before God. The dividing wall has been torn down. And so if we're one people, then we have one, one heart uh, that is, has the law of God uh, with, its, with this written code in it. The Holy Spirit causes us to walk in His ways, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Again, lots of confusion here in uh, modern theology spawned mostly in a very radical age, the 19th century. 19th century was the the century of the greatest 
technological, scientific, and moral and social change the world has ever seen. We've seen a lot of acceleration from them, but the, 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 the shift in worldview was dramatic in the 19th century, and it affected uh, churches dramatically in our theology, starting with the seminaries in Europe. The seventh point is this. All of God's elect are, re uh, are regenerate. They've been born again. They, they have God's law written in their heart because, well, we say the very word regenerate. That means that we are generated again. And that, and that means that we were at one time generated by God and we are regenerated in our rebirth. And so we are back in, uh, in a position uh, very akin to who Adam was, having peace with God, having communion with God, uh, having, again, regained the, the knowledge of God, regained their, uh, regained their righteous status, uh, not in practice perfectly, but at least by imputation and our justification, we have, that, we have a perfect status there before God. The, um, and so the new creation, this regeneration, again involves the law of God and believers. Of course it does. Uh, and I, I think when I'm preaching through the Ten, the Ten Commandments, I'll show you where every single one of these Ten Commandments is somewhere uh, taught or exemplified in the New Testament. And, and the, the Scripture uh, citations will be copious. Now, Jesus had the law written in his heart. Now, that's very important because Jesus was the one who received the anointing of the Holy, Holy Spirit without measure. And he was a man, and he was, of course, divine. Uh, but in Psalm 40, uh, he speaks to uh, uh, the fact that the law of God uh, is written in his heart. So let me go back to Psalm 40. Uh, I'll quote Psalm 40 to God's people. He's the mediator of the covenant of grace in both the New Testament and in the Old Testament. If there were not a mediator of the covenant in, in his holiness, but Jesus did the same, that's because the moral law is perfect. And you know what? When you see this word perfect in Scripture, perfect things remain. Imperfect things fail, and they're done away with. The perfect stands. The moral law of God is perfect. The moral law of God will not depart from sinners in heaven. The new circumcised heart, the heart of flesh, will be carried into the new heavens and the new earth. And the glorified saints will be completely complicit and able to obey cheerfully, wonderfully, without this weight of, of sin that, that, that bears us down, is bent to, to, always, to always go astray. None of that will have that law in our hearts forever. Moreover, the people in hell, sadly, they will be under the dominion of the law always. The law always demanding Obedience to God with greater and greater iniquity in hell, the raging against God, the blaspheming of God, they incur more and more guilt. The burden of the law is even heavier upon them. The worm and the fire and, and the disgrace, the whole pain of hell is the pain of conscience to people under the dominion of law, screaming for payment, screaming for equity, screaming for righteousness, which they will never, ever, ever deliver. And that is why we say the law of God is foundational. And once that foundation is set, 
It need never be relayed, and it never ever need to be taken up again, because it is uh, it is the supporting structure of all revelation, and without which gospel and even Christ makes no sense. Again, here's the conclusion of our teaching: the Ten Commandments are critically important to understanding the all of Scripture. Without understanding the law, neither the gospel nor the correct view of God or even Jesus himself is possible. Now, we need to be very careful when we go around clipping uh, commandments. Uh, you know, I, uh, you see all kinds of stuff on Facebook. You know, there's a poster there and someone is, is wanting us to, you know, the question comes up, do you love God? And then there's beneath that same panel, there's three or four pictures of, of Jesus. And I, and of course, I write back, I say, hey, that can't be a picture of God there, is it? You know, that can't be a picture of God. Of course it can't be. If you love Jesus and then you immediately throw up a picture of God, what are you saying? You're violating the second commandment blatantly. But people are okay with that today because they think after the incarnation, things have changed. Well, my friends, Jesus, as it were, had a physical manifestation in the Theophany at Sinai. There was a physical manifestation of Christ. And yet God at that very place said, no images, please. The problem with removing a commandment, one of the ten, the fourth is another one that likes to go. The people want to just rid it. It's much worse than merely breaking a commandment. Because when you break a commandment but keep its standard, there's always, there's always the reminder to, to turn back. There's always the standard. You say, well, this is, this is the path. Okay. The commandment says this is, this is where you need to walk to return. But if you do away with the commandment, you have no return. And I am sorry, my friends. I, the way I read my scripture is, is if, you, if you do not repent, but continue in sin. I, I mean, the best theologians that I read say there's no remittance of sins without repentance. Why did John the Baptist insist on repentance? And why did Jesus insist on repentance? He could have very easily just been going out, hey, believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. Believe in me, I'm the Savior. Yeah, yeah, just believe in me. Is that the gospel? No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, walk with your God in new obedience in the spirit that he provides you. And repentance always has a view to God and therefore law. That is to say, not laws of works to be saved, but laws in Christ to honor him in gratitude for saving you. All right. But never let go of the least of the commandments, or Jesus warns you, or you'll be called least in the kingdom. I don't know. I've preached on that already. I'm not even sure what I know what, what that means, but it is, it is not something desirable. The, the root problem, of course, is that we've gotten too big for our britches in the enlightenment. We think we know more than God. Man has become the measure of all things, not God. We measure God. We critique the scriptures. We, t we, we now decide what is... Uh, an acceptable manuscript, which is not. We place ourselves above the Word of God, and uh, we invent theologies that are, have nothing at all to do uh, with the revelation given once and for all to the saints, uh, where the nation of Israel and all the Gentiles are one body, the dividing wall of heaven being cast down, and the primacy of the law is kept. What the right view of this is, 
is that the, the law as a covenant of works by nature in Adam has been absolutely shattered and no one, no fallen man in his race can keep it. But the law stands. It condemns sin. On the other hand, the moral law, the same for substance as in the Ten Commandments in, by the hand of Christ teaches us the way in which we should walk. None of us attain that by perfection, but when we fail, we are not condemned because Christ has kept it for us and he is uh, helping us more and more to grow in holiness. The holiness of the law, my friends, is, is infinite. There's no way we can possibly attain it in this life because we remain finite in our knowledge and in our uh, capacity to, to obey. But one day in our glorification, according to the power of God, he will change us and that law will be completely compatible with our new, with our new nature. And so it's a foretaste of heaven. That's the correct view. And there are others that have dispensed with that view and have confused a great number of churches. And what's going on is, is Christians are being weakened because of gross violations of the law of God, especially in ruining the day of the market soul, uh, the day of the, uh, the market soul where, where God principally works and dispenses his grace and meets with his people for strength. Well, it's an atrocity. It's an invention from hell. Impious, and it needs to be condemned. Another thing that people, these, these theologians that are smarter than God, that have declared that there is no historic Adam, they're on the rise. Yeah, I, could, I could have you introduce uh, to a professor uh, who is at uh, Greenville, and he's written a book on the historicity, historicity of Adam and the flack that he's obtained by, by people he thought was firmly in our corner, that, that Adam was a real man historically, that we are descendants of Adam historically, that he was created from Adam, from, from dirt. That's his name, Adam. And they've invented all manner of new theories. So if Adam goes, get what, what goes? If Adam goes, the law goes. And that's perfectly all right with so many people who think they understand grace. But what they understand is licentiousness and lawlessness. And that's, my friends, what we have today. It's on the rampant. It's on the move. It's affecting Reformed churches. And it will be something that will, that will greatly displease God. And God help us and God be merciful to our nations. I don't know what people are doing on the Lord's Day anymore, but we get a sparse crowd in here, and everybody loves football. The gospel, my friends, is completely compatible with this holiness. And it points to Christ as our only ground for God. And so if you know the law well, you have the advantage to appreciate Christ more and you'll run to him and be more and more great, grateful to him for all that he is and for his obeying the law and fulfilling it on your behalf. Christ did two things. He obeyed God actively in all of his commands and he obeyed God passively and suffered all that was prophesied by him or of him in, in, in the law, both by his uh, his active obedience and his passive obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly, perfectly obedient, the perfect son of God, which Adam was not. If you have Adam as your federal head, you die. 
If by faith you believe the gospel, you have Christ as your federal head. You live, and you live everlastingly. That, my friends, is good news. That, that is the best of news, and that's what I want to deliver to you. We can rejoice in God's righteousness in Christ, the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you then for the primacy of your law. We thank you that it is foundational to understanding all of Scripture. We pray that we will be those scribes that handle your law well, uh, fetching things old and new. And we pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in all of your goodness, all your revelation, that we would teach men all that you have instructed your people, starting with the very first pages of your holy book. Help us, Lord, to retain all this and not to omit one word, not to add one word for the blessing and the promise of your holy city is to those who are found faithful. Now, Lord, in Christ, we know that we are faithful. And so we thank you that you have already received us. Now, bless us, Lord, and give us great encouragement as we pursue holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now sing our final anthem. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. I'm sorry. Oh, the communion. You know, you know I forgot that. <laughs> so why don't we do this? Thank you. Thank you. Come, uh, the elders, please come forward. Uh, force of habit, I'm afraid. Thank you for reminding me, gentlemen. Well, uh, on that mountain, we, we see something unusual that uh, at first Moses was the only one allowed to go up, and he spent 40 days and he came back with the two tablets. Then afterwards, the Lord included all the elders uh, of Israel, appointed under the time of Jethro there, and they came and they supped with, with the Lord, and, and that that the grace of that communion has even been kept in other feast, uh, feast days and in other ordinances, uh, the temple ordinances uh, for Israel. God, uh, God is familiar with us, and we who are in Christ are familiar with God, and He is our friend, and He meets us in a very intimate way, uh, not only in our worship, but especially at the table. Uh, there can be no better sign of His friendship than this where uh, he once again reminds us that he has given himself to us. Uh, that these are, the gifts are not bread and wine. The gifts are what the bread and wine represent, and that is himself. He's loved us uh, with an everlasting love, and uh, he wants us to remember that. He wants us to remember that, and this simple, this simple sacrament does that for us. Let's pray that the Lord now sanctify bread and wine to his honor. Uh, Lord, these are simple gifts. Uh, we use bread, we use wine on a daily basis, but Lord, uh, by your blessing, they become for us signs and seals of your great covenant that you have given us uh, and that which in which we ho have hope in Christ. We pray, Lord, as we dine with Christ and commune with Christ, that our souls would rejoice and that we would re receive fresh nutrition, uh, 
And Lord, great, great encouragement to go forward with you as your love means all, all to us. And so bless the bread, bless the wine, and make a distinction here. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remind the church, if you have not been baptized or if you're not a member of the church, then just uh, do not receive the bread or the wine. This is for Christ's friends confirmed in the church. If you're a Christian and you belong to a church and you've been baptized and you're under the authority of God's uh, shepherds, then, yeah, this meal is for you. Otherwise, if, please, you are required, you're required to repent first and then show your love to Christ and join the rest of the camp at the festival. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord was in the upper room with his friends. He took bread, and he showed his disciples who broke the bread. And he said, this bread is my body, and it's broken for you. So I give it to you. Remember me by it. <laughs> 